Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Wednesday, February 14th. I'm Hannah Floor. Alaska lawmakers heard overwhelming opposition to a bill last Wednesday that would allow electronic monitoring in state fisheries. As KFSK reports, most of the fishermen and industry representatives were concerned with the cost to fishermen. Senate Bill 209 and its companion bill in the House would allow the state's Board of Fisheries to require electronic monitoring in state fisheries. The program would be managed by the State Department of Fish and Game. Commissioner Doug Vincent Lang told the Senate Labor and Commerce Committee the bill is meant to create another tool for fisheries enforcement. I think the question comes down to right now the only tool that the board has when they're concerned about a fishery and and the potential for some kind of violation occurring in that fishery is to put an observer on board the boat. They don't have any other option. So I think adding this tool to the toolbox gives the board another option. The bills were introduced last month by Governor Mike Dunleavy. They would make it possible to use electronic monitoring in place of mandatory observers aboard fishing vessels. Currently, only a few state-managed fisheries require observers. Vincent Lang said that the small size of many fishing boats makes it difficult to find space for an observer. Clearly, on a small boat, electronic monitoring would, would not inconvenience the boat operator by having to bunk that person and have them on the deck space while they're fishing. So like a sane boat, you know, there's limited bunk space and there's limited deck space when you're running the sane gear. That would be an opportunity not to inconvenience that boat owner with those kinds of um, presences on the, on the deck. And he said the price tag of electronic monitoring would be significantly cheaper than the cost of observers. Fishermen have to pay to have observers on their boats. They would also have to pay for the electronic monitoring equipment which is estimated to cost roughly $17,000 to install, plus $5,000 in yearly maintenance. Senator Forrest Dunbar, an Anchorage Democrat, said that since very few state-managed fisheries require observers, it's inaccurate to compare the cost of observers to the cost of electronic monitoring. It's not really we're reducing costs from observer to electronic. We're sort of going from nothing to electronic monitoring, which would be potentially a significant increase in costs for these boats. Tracy Welch is the executive director of United Fishermen of Alaska. She told the committee the group opposes the Senate bill in part because of the expected cost to fishermen. She said she's concerned that many fishermen cannot afford those costs, especially given the current state of the seafood industry. And she says there's another problem. If electronic monitoring is mandatory, equipment failures could mean that fishermen would not be able to fish until the equipment is repaired. I talked to one of my board members yesterday who is currently facing equipment issues for a cod fishery, and he is currently waiting for someone to come to his boat to fix it, and he cannot leave until that happens. So if this is really about enforcement, can we possibly put more money towards enforcement um, rather than electronic monitoring? Charlotte Levy spoke for the Aleutians East Borough. She spent the last six years working with fishermen in the region to develop an electronic monitoring, or EM, program in the federal fisheries. I can't stress enough that EM programs are very complicated. They are resource intensive and and just as burdensome as observer programs and should be given the same rigorous setting prior to considering a new program. She said that the federal electronic monitoring programs were based on existing observer programs. The state currently does not have this level of infrastructure, and it's worth considering what types of resources and funding the state has to develop a new monitoring program where none currently exists. All comments, both verbal and written, expressed opposition to the bill as it is currently written. 
Most were concerned with the potential cost of the program to fishermen. Some cited concerns with government overreach and surveillance. The Senate bill remains pending in the Labor and Commerce Committee. A similar bill in the Alaska House has not yet received a hearing. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor. A Harvard study on charter schools has been driving conversations at the state capitol about ways to improve Alaska schools. The study ranks charter schools in Alaska as the best in the nation. Governor Mike Dunleavy has cited it repeatedly and called on lawmakers to expand the charter school system. Eric Stone sat down with one of the study's authors to learn more. For Paul Peterson, director of Harvard University's program on education policy and governance, the results were unexpected. I, you know, I have to say I am surprised that Alaska came in number one. For several reasons. First of all, Alaska's traditional neighborhood schools rank near the bottom in national comparisons. And the finding doesn't really fit in with some of the other top-ranked states. Peterson says other high-ranking states like Massachusetts, New York, and Colorado tend to have highly educated populations clustered around universities and colleges. The odd state out really is Alaska. Why does Alaska perform so well? Well, Peterson says it's hard to say, and it's not the focus of the study. You'd have to do a sort of a case study of every state, and that's what's beyond our resources. He and co-author Dana Shaquille set out to produce the first state-by-state ranking of charter schools in the U.S. using a test given to a representative sample of 4th and 8th graders in every state, the National Assessment of Educational Progress. And while they can't say exactly why Alaska's charter schools outperform those of other states, their data does indicate that the benefits of charter schools are widespread in Alaska. When just looking at charter school students on free and reduced-priced lunch, Alaska's still near the top, number three to be precise. I found that sort of interesting, that this was not sort of like, uh, oh, okay, this is just a bunch of rich kids who are doing well. Uh, this is what we're seeing for kids pretty much across the board. And there's some data suggesting that non-white students perform especially well in Alaska's charter schools. The data is limited. There was only enough data to isolate white students, not other ethnic groups in Alaska. But among white students, Alaska came in third. So what's pulling Alaska up to the top level seems to be the performance of the non-white students. Another key finding of the paper is that it matters who authorizes a charter school, basically who allows a charter school to be created, whether it's a school district, a university, or a state agency. Local school districts look pretty good. They're sort of in the middle, but the ones that stand out where students seem to be performing the best are those uh, which uh, where, where it's a statewide agency. And Peterson has some thoughts on why. Basically, it's the state's job to make sure schools operate effectively, and they've been doing that for a long time. If you assign them the job of doing the same thing for charter schools, probably they're going to do a better job of it than some newcomer on the block. And that's been a topic of discussion at the Capitol. The leading House education bill would allow the Alaska Board of Education to directly authorize charter schools. As it stands, the state board has to wait for an application from a local school district or an appeal of a charter denied at the district level. But the study has some important limitations. First of all, it's based on data collected between 2009 and 2018. And Peterson says things might have changed since the data was collected. A lot has happened in the last five years. Call it COVID. I call it closing schools. Uh, you know, it's just a lot of things that has, have happened. So whether or not we would get the same ranking for charter schools in Alaska today is an open question.
And he says it's also possible that there are differences between Alaska's students and those in other states that might make it difficult to compare the two. There's also the possibility that given Alaska's low population and relatively small number of charter schools, the test may not have captured a sample that represents the whole state. Whatever the implications, lawmakers will have a chance to dig deeper into the study soon. Peterson is due to testify before the House Education Committee on February 7th. With additional reporting by Tim Rocky in Anchorage, in Juneau, I'm Eric Stone. Ketchikan community members are complaining that their grocery runs are getting interrupted by potholes. And as the problem deepens, conspiracy theories are cropping up about why the city is so slow to patch them. Jack Darrell set out to solve the municipal mystery. If you're headed to run errands in downtown Ketchikan, it's likely you'll drive down Tongas Avenue. And at some point, you'll turn towards the water into one of the busiest parking lots in the city. And it's likely that on the way in, you'll hit a pothole. In the shadow of the Plaza Mall, cars rattle over a stretch of pockmarked asphalt between a bank and espresso shop and the Safeway. Jefferson Way. To most, it may not look like anything at all. But to many Ketchikan residents, like Don Munhoven, it looks like a tumble-down purgatory of forgotten infrastructure and a tire realignment. Munhoven runs Oliva's Fish and Chowder, a lunch stand overlooking Jefferson Way. He's frying fish for the lunch rush. It's not a safe situation. They should, someone, go around and fix them. You know, you're forced to run over these potholes, and they just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, so... The question Munhoven and others are asking is this. Why is one of the busiest stretches of asphalt in the city allowed to fall so far into disrepair? Delilah Walsh is the Ketchikan city manager and had a past life as a tax assessor. So has she seen strange, seemingly isolated stretches of derelict road like this before? (laughs) In every single community ever. (laughs) Walsh says the problem is that it isn't a public road. It isn't a road at all. And step one, she says, is to find out who owns it. So somebody owns the property. There's never this ownerless piece of land. Jefferson Way is a private access easement, meaning that the onus of responsibility is on whichever business that owns it. And there are a few suspects, the bank, the marine supply store, the espresso stand, and the Safeway gas station and grocery. But Walsh says it doesn't have to be this way. The road could be maintained by the city, but there's a catch. It would need to be brought up to maintainable standards, but that's the problem in the first place. The real person to ask is the assessor's office at the borough. Check with the assessor's office and ask for the the parcel maps. Those borough maps revealed that the private easement is the shared property of multiple businesses, which begs another question. Is this bane of Ketchikan motorists just a platted stretch of commercial no-man's land? 150-some feet of wood fill and asphalt that exists only in the far cosmic reaches of its owner's tax boundaries. Amanda Robinson, the acting director of the city's public works, says that usually when there's a shared easement, there's a legal agreement on file somewhere. It could be that this does not exist, but this is how it should be, is that when an easement is placed over multiple properties, that there should be some kind of legal document that spells out who is responsible for what. Robinson says that if that document exists, Morgan Barry, her counterpart at the borough, would know where to find it. Barry says he isn't aware of anything like that, though, but he is familiar with the complexity 
that is Jefferson Way. Just from from the outside looking at it, there's a lot of different parties, and decisions have been made through the years that have led to that situation, um, and it's a, it's very complicated. He's right. The state records show the unassuming little easement has seen a host of subdividings and changes of hands over the years. Then, a lead, a local contractor named Brad Home. He says there is a legal agreement for the upkeep of the 150-foot stretch of asphalt that is Jefferson Way. Holmes used to be a part of the organization overseeing it. But I'm no longer a part of it, really, so I used to be a president of that, but now I'm nothing. Holmes says once... All of this property, everything the parking lot touches, was the kingdom of the Hames Corporation, a Southeast Alaska company that operates liquor stores and groceries in Sitka and Ketchikan. Then, when Hames Corp started scaling back their Ketchikan operations after the pulp mill closed in the late 90s, the land was subdivided. Home bought some of it, what is now Cedar Point. To manage the land, the business has formed a nonprofit, and Holmes says they've been trying for years to do exactly what city manager Delilah Walsh suggested. But the idea eventually is to turn Jefferson Way should be, I mean, because everybody drives on that road, <laughs> should be a public road. And the large potholes that crowd the entrance? Turns out they're not a case of conspiratorial or bureaucratic corporate apathy. Holmes says that stretch, where all the potholes are, is outside of his ownership group's jurisdiction. That's actually the state of Alaska, uh, the highway, that's what the DOT manages, what those potholes are. So that's actually DOT that should be fixing the potholes. <laughs> that fact was confirmed by the organization's lawyer. The first yard or so of Jefferson Way, according to Home, the part that's in the worst shape, fits, administratively speaking, into the borders of the Tongass Avenue corridor, which is part of the longest road on the island, which is considered a highway. So it's under the dominion of the state. If you wanted to get that whole fix, you'd have to complain to DOT. And DOT, on a regular basis, fixes potholes. It's just... That probably got really big, and they just haven't had a chance to get to it yet. Home may be right. The infamous Jefferson Way potholes are likely not here to stay. The DOT unveiled their five-year plan for Ketchikan last year. One of the projects, totaling up to $20 million, is improvements to Tongass Avenue. The project deadline for completion is early 2025. Until then, Ketchikan locals will have to put up with a few extra bumps in the road. On Jefferson Way and Ketchikan, I'm Jack Darrell. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.